0: Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a key tech podcast where we interview MedTech leaders about the critical data-driven decisions they make during their product development projects. I'm your host, Andy Rogers. Welcome, everybody. I'm Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development. The, the latest guest is the one and only Brian Murphy. Welcome, Brian. Hey, Andy. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Great. Great. Yeah, great topic today. It's going to be one Definitely one that's near and dear to your heart specifically. What are we talking about today? Building and managing teams for IBD platform development. Today, Brian, Brian and I are going to be chatting about building and managing teams to develop these complex, complex products and bring these assays to market. So Brian, welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Happy to chat as always. Yeah. Is this your first podcast? Possibly, Pat, possibly. I think I made a brief appearance on public radio many years ago, but I'll let people check that down there. Nice. Nice. Cool. Well, I, I, before we get going on the, the topic, I wanted to bring up your role uh, here at KeyTech. Hey, tell tell everybody a little bit about your role. Sure. I, I wear many hats at KeyTech. I think most people know me as an engineer, a project manager, but the other main role I, I play at KeyTech is a VP of people. So... Brian, you, you know, you're recruiting actively right now. And so we'll, we'll tee off the first question for you, you know, pretty straightforward. If you're trying to get an assay on the market, you know, from a lab that's been kind of manually pipetted to an automated system, you know, what, what sort of disciplines do you need for those, those teams to get that assay from bench to to market? So kind of think of it as me starting from the evolution, right? Someone in a chemistry lab and a biochem lab is developing the very basic building blocks of that assay. So that's going to be all of, uh, you know, what reagents are you doing? What reactions are occurring? What types of samples are going in? And so that's, that's you know, people with strong backgrounds in, in biochem, strong backgrounds in uh, molecular diagnostics. But then you have to merge that with all of the various other disciplines that do the automation. So mechanical engineering, computer engineering, electrical engineering, if you're the industrial designers and usability engineers, it's, it's a broad team. Definitely talk a little bit about, you know, the blend of, so there's the blend of disciplines, but what about the blend of seniority in those teams? You know, all the kind of different things you need to get that, that has to get done. What's the, what's the blend of seniority to, to take this assay from bench to market? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that doing assay translation from bench top to products probably involves the same type of diverse seniority team that you'd probably want in most other companies. I think it's fair to say that in any team, you always want a mix of seniorities. You know, people with real world experience who have been around a long time, who have diverse backgrounds have worked on many other products, you know, that those senior people are core to a project. They bring so much experience, so much wisdom, but you also need, you know, younger, more junior people, they bring new ideas into the mix. They've experienced with the latest technologies, you know, it, it's, I, I feel like a, a team composed of only junior people is never going to get there. And a team composed of only senior people is never going to get there. I, I think that hybrid model. It is valid and, and I'll go out on a limb and say can apply that to probably any other, any other business out there. That's great. I totally, totally agree. Yeah. You need that mixture of running tests, getting data and forming, you know, decide decisions that need to be made by folks who've, who've, you know, done it before. So what does it look like when you're out? I know you're, you're leading recruiting at, at Key Tech, and maybe you can chime in a little bit on, you know, helping our, our clients as well, who are recruiting for, you know, junior and experienced folks. like. At Keytech, what does it look like when we're, we're recruiting for, for our team? That's a huge question. Maybe we can hit on some high points. Uh, number one, identifying where you're trying to find a good candidates from. You know, we primarily recruit out of schools and we've put a lot of thought into what schools we recruit at. That works really well for Keytech. But it's possible that other companies may want to recruit out of other pools, maybe you know, people have been in industry longer. So I think that first part is making sure you're recruiting at the right place. Uh, and then another big step is identifying how are you actually going to evaluate candidates, right? What's, what's your, what do you want to be doing in this interview to assess someone? You know, how do you best assess if someone have the skills you need to do the job? And so mapping out that interview process and that interview plan, who's involved, you know, you can easily interview people and ask all the wrong things. And then of course, ultimately hire the wrong people. So um, maybe those are the first early steps, identify the place, identify the questions. But you know, there's, there's probably about 300 other steps after that, <laughs> happy to keep chatting about those too. So you need a multidisciplinary team. You need a team with a, a blend of experience and you've got to make sure you've got that that engine running, the recruiting engine running to, to fuel, right? Your project teams. So, so you've, let's say, wait, well, we're not quite switching over to managing a team yet, but let's talk about just more challenges with, with building a team. So at Key Tech I think, you know, we've both been here for many years. I think we've seen that engine running, but we also see our clients building teams as well. And I'll chime in on you know, we want to talk a little bit about some of the challenges with building this, these teams and, and what we've seen and, and how to sort of mitigate those challenges. So the one that I see the most and probably is the genesis for, for talking to someone like key tech is timing. How do you know, you can't build, uh, uh, an IBD team, you know, with a, a snap of a finger. So timing, I feel like it's, is always challenging. So. That that's one challenge. What are some other challenges? Brian, you ended on training our team. What, what have you seen, you know, in, 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 working more intimately with our clients, with them building their team, maybe after they've hired it. That's a great point. You're totally right. The timing is important. You can't just hire people in and expect them on day one to be fully spun up on the project, fully ready with their team. And you need to build that team ahead of time that need to have experience working with each, with each other, and they need to be able to know each other's styles, know each other's strengths and weaknesses and kind of complement each other. So I think, I think that's, that's a great challenge to overcome. There is, is that timing. I think another challenging challenge is making sure you've got good, diverse backgrounds, diversity in all regards, education, gender racial, you know, seniority, we talked about, all these different things bring together a good mixed team that's going to help you if you're brainstorming or a trend solve a particularly challenging problem. Obviously it's, it's not quite as much of the starter of building a team, but uh, there's obviously a retention issue. You need to have great, interesting work to give people. If you're going to hire the best people out there and tell them that your company specializes in the funnest, most interesting work, you have to fulfill that pro- promise. And bring in the fun that's most interesting work. So obviously that that relates to retention. That's a great segue, Brian, into managing uh, a team for IVD platform development. So we've now that we've built it, let's talk a little bit more about managing. And I agree, retention and training and performance, like each of those three areas are 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 paramount, paramount for hitting your milestones. So, you know, you've you've led a couple of these projects. I know you're leading a few of them now. You know, talk a little bit about managing a team, like what, what are some of the, you know, critical skills of, of leading an IBD platform development program as a, you know, as a, as a leader of that project? Number one, making sure you've got the, the right people in, in the seats on your team, right? If any, if any, if, if you're thinking of this from the leader's perspective or project manager's perspective, or any organization, right? You can't, you know, if you start with, you start with not the right people, you're going to struggle from that point out. So, you know, I know we're kind of transitioning off the recruiting topic and more of the managing topic, but, but, you know, it's maybe before you move on to management, you have to make sure you have the right team and because that that's going to matter so much. I think also thinking heavily then about how you delegate tasks out to those on your team. Ideally you have a great team and therefore you can constantly be delegating out. Letting people run sub-initiatives, sub-activities, you know, that's how you get people working in parallel. I think fostering a great dynamic among your team. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug the KeyTech values here and say, I think you know at KeyTech, those are a way that we make our teams work well together. We have one value which emphasizes respecting and supporting each other. And I think that's crucial to a team. Right? If people can't respect and support each other, they're never going to be able to build off of each other. We also, you know, emphasize having fun. I think that's another great way that uh, we make our teams effective is to make sure there's some fun in it. And I, I think the very best clients we've worked for also seem to internalize that idea of having fun. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know what we're doing is hard. Right, developing products is hard. Bringing new technologies to market is hard. And it's very easy to get wrapped up in all of those challenges. And if you lose sight of having fun through the process, it can really demoralize your team. So, you know, taking on those challenges in a, a fun way, in a respectful way, and in a creative way, I think it's what, what keeps the, the energy in the team. Got it. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that's why a lot of people, you know, like to work with, with key tech. But so let's talk a little bit more specifically about these teams, right? So the the customer, you know, customer is kind of leading the assay development, like ten times out of ten, with 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 Keytech and, and and what I would say are the ideal sort of arrangements for these types of projects, where the customer has an assay team, and Keytech has the the hardware, the firmware, software team, uh, design, industrial design, human centered design team. So, what is the optimal like arrangement for working with? an assay, separate assay team and a separate hardware team. You know, what what, what do you think is the optimal arrangement or, or how to work together since they're by definition of separate teams? Yeah, I think number one would be close and frequent communication. You know, you you can't, you probably can't communicate too much. Inherently, both of those teams come at things from different perspectives. Right? The assay team is focused on what do we need on the biology and chemistry side to make sure this assay is working perfectly? And the engineering side is probably biased in their own way, and their own side. What do we need here to make sure that this instrument functions properly? And that, those are fair biases. We all bring our biases to any situation, but the more we can communicate in any kind of situation like that, uh, and again, I'm gonna generalize to any organization here, when you have, you know, um, your biases like that, if you can be touching base frequently, It's very easy to understand the needs of the other person. So, you know, if, if, if you have a weekly meeting or even sometimes intense parts of a project have daily standup meetings where you're getting together to talk through, okay, the assay team says they need X, they need these temperature set points, or they need this uh, amount of mixing. And the engineering team can easily say, here's why that's doable or not um and similarly, the engineering team may come in and say hey we can give you this much power and this portion of the heater but we can't do more i think if you're constantly talking with each other and, and syncing up about priorities you know what's most important what's what's going to make or break this device from the engineering or assay side and understand where everyone's coming from i think then you're going to get to you know the, the optimal sweet spot of the product like communication i i sounds like what you're describing is like, I would hope more on like the the front end of a project where, you know, you're, we use the term like de-risking, right? So like, what are the risks and what are the trade-offs for requirements? So you've seen daily kind of daily stand ups, assay team spinning back requirements to the engineering team saying whether they're feasible or not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, know, I mean, those, the requirements are kind of the, the written way to document all of those different interactions and debates you have and so yeah establishing really good requirements I think you know it gets it gets a, a rep for being the most boring part of a project Hang yeah. out the requirements but it's kind of like it's 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 the vegetables you have to eat in the meal and uh, but if you if you do it and, and you stay true to those that you know you really can have a, a good product yep T- totally agree requirements are a must and uh, we could have our whole podcast about requirements <laughs> if we wanted to but I don't know who would tune in for that one. Yeah, we have to keep this fun in. Yeah, yeah. You've managed some very challenging projects. Ones where, you know, obviously there isn't a clear solution up front. That's why KeyTech key tech is hired. But how do you, as, as a leader of these projects, like keep team members engaged when and motivated, right? when When sometimes, you know, the data just, conflicts with what you know the client thinks should it it should say or things just aren't working. how do you how do you as a leader both how do you keep the team members motivated? We'll start with that first because th- I think this is what happens when you're running IVD programs, right? Things don't work. Yeah, inherently, we're working on cutting edge new products. If everything were dull at the time, those devices would have already been invented years ago, right? inherently, the things we're working on are things that have not uh, existed to date. And therefore some of those are going to pan out, some aren't, or at least it will, it's going to be a bumpy road as you kind of find what hurdles, you know, you uncover the next layer of the proverbial onion and, uh, and you have to dig down to that. I think the way to keep people motivated is to keep in mind the big picture, you know, what are you trying to solve here? What's this product going to do? How many people is it going to help pause? And you step back at those challenging points and you kind of zoom back out to that 30,000 foot level. And you remember, you know, the impact of potential product. I think that's what motivates people. I I remember during the multi-year development of Genmark, particularly on the Genmark side, the staff at Genmark put in very long hours, really putting their hearts in that product. And I remember the leadership of that company reminding everyone regularly, that uh, this product was gonna change lives. It was gonna save people, it literally was going to stop people from dying. And I think every time I heard um, that were reminded to the staff, it re-energized people and kept them motivated. Cool, and it, and it worked out in, in, in the case of Genmark. And as you and I have seen on other projects, you know, they they don't pay it out. And that's also progress, right? If, if there's a promising diagnostic or sample prep technology, it's worth pursuing, we, you know, we'll help our clients or work with clients to explore that, but they don't always, always pan out. How do you know or describe how you, as, as a leader of a project management program, evaluate where, where the, if things aren't working, like how do you figure out whether it's the assay, whether it's the hardware, whether it's the software, I guess, just talk a little bit more about like kind of debugging, if you will, like when there's multiple members of a team, we, we've been, we're talking about managing teams now. We built them, now we're running this project and certainly the team is motivated, but when things don't go well, how do you work with multiple disciplines to kind of figure out, you know, the root cause of these of these challenges? Yeah. Solving that is the same as debugging anything, right? If you're debugging a piece of software or a mechanical fixture or debugging a cross-disciplinary platform and then I think it's, classic isolate variables, right? If you've got 10 new things you've introduced in this latest prototype and all of a sudden the prototype's not working and it did in the last prototype, I realize I'm, I'm stating the obvious here, but isolate variables, you know, figure out, you know, how can you turn off even nine of those 10 new things and just right. test one of those at a time, you know, whether that's changing code, whether that's, all right, let's shut down the subassembly assembly here. Whether that's on the assay side, one of those 10 things might be, oh, we tweaked chemistry. We're using more surfactant than we used last time. All right, well, use the new fixture. Let's switch back to the old ingredients that went into it. Take out that surfactant. See, if that change it? It's amazing to me how often, how many years into a career you can go, you still come back to that same problem-solving method of isolate variables, take one change at a time, go back to a point of design that you know works, and, and stepwise move into it to figure out what thing changed it. Yeah, it seems like that's what we're doing all the time, right? Early on with these tough projects is root cause analysis and, and breaking it down or building up, right? As you have confidence introduce another layer and see what, see what ultimately breaks it or you need to study further. So appreciate that. So, you know, I guess any other comments on, on managing a team? I mean, you've talked about communication and, and, and inspiring people and, and a little bit about like the, you know, debugging approaches, any other insights do you have, do you have any other insights, I guess, on, on managing these multidisciplinary multi-location teams? I think I think understand what motivates people. Yeah. Right? Understand what what's driving the people on your team to want to be successful. Are they doing this because they believe in that mission, hopefully? Are they doing this because they really enjoy their specific task they're working on and they want to see that task succeed? Are they doing this because they enjoy working with other people? Right. And that's that's what makes that successful and motivated. I mean, in many ways, if, if you are, if you're being a great leader, you're understanding this for each individual on your team, down to that nuanced level. Right. And then you're working with those people to kind of, to leverage what makes them great, but also understand that for this person, what they want most is to be in a large group, working with others is that first all reaction that makes them happy every day. For this other person, it might mean getting a test to work correctly and getting good results. That's the thing at the end of the day, will they could go, go home happy, want to come back the next day. And you could probably expand that out to kind of cross company interactions too. If you're working with someone on another company, same thing there. What do they want to see to feel successful? And how can you, you know, make them, make them happy in that way? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, I, I think one one other area I t- you touched on it earlier is like keeping things fun. So and, and we we hear that a lot that our clients you know they like to work with us. We're actually fun to have dinner with and and drink a beer. I guess what are you doing maybe like week to week or month to month to kind of keep things light and fun on the team? Yeah, there's probably there's probably two categories to that. Obviously, obviously there's some specific one you know one off things you can point to that are fun and silly. We have uh, for good or bad, we've, you know, done some silly April Fools pranks over the years of, you know, taking a device and rewriting the firmware to make it make some strange sounds or play, play the Star Wars theme or something like that. You know, and those are those one-off things that are fun, but April Fools only comes once a year. And if, if that's the only thing you're doing to have fun. Uh, you're not going to get there. I'm very much a believer in that second category that I was thinking of, which is just the day to day, small, very like literally one second interaction things that make things fun. You know, being in a meeting, keeping it lighthearted, keeping it jovial, remembering that there's never going to be an end to the action items. There's never going to be an end to the work that needs to get done. And so just try to enjoy the moments, enjoy the interactions, enjoy the meetings. And and keeping just a general positive. That's that's probably also a good personal philosophy outside of work. We could all <laughs> have Bonnie, but I feel like it's really true yeah. in a project. And I think uh, a lot of us—you hear a lot of laughing in Key Tech meetings—and I think that goes a long way to bring the fun. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely deep. IVD platform development is is like life, but in a way, <laughs> it is, and vice versa, right? So, cool. So I guess. What are your, what are your two, th- two cents on building teams, given those, those, that, that range startup and, and global company? Yeah. And I, I think specifically, uh, you know, from, from the engineering perspective, I think that's, I think that's where I have the most experience. So maybe, maybe I'll speak to the, the engineering team side of it. There is inherently on, on almost all the products that we touch or really that any of our our clients out there are working on, you know, they're going to be electromechanical. They're going to inherently have hardware, both circuit boards, mechanisms, and there's going to be software, right? At this point, there's, there's hardly a device out there that doesn't have software on it. And so you kind of, you think about that, how it kind of breaks down disciplines, right? It's, it's going to be computer engineers, computer programmers, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers. You know, those disciplines are kind of, you, you, it's going to be hard to not have those on your team. So I would tell someone, you know, if they were building, if they were a, a new, you know, head of R&D uh, at this either startup company or even just coming into existing company, but they're trying to build out that team, you know, looking, you know, A, do you have those disciplines? Because, you know, in, unless you're doing just the, the simplest of a new collection swap or something like that, you're going to need those disciplines there. Um. And then obviously, there's there's definitely supporting kind of engineering disciplines that are that kind of branch out for those, right? So maybe someone uh, with more of a manufacturing engineering background. Obviously, that kind of overlaps with the mechanical and electrical side. You know, someone who's got a lot of good DFM backgrounds, maybe a, a systems engineer who kind of over, you know, looks over all of those disciplines a little more. They've got enough mechanical, electrical, and, and, process and manufacturing. So, you know, that's another very common role that we see sometimes actually kind of maybe one of the most missed roles is having a system engineer. You need someone who's keeping in mind that big picture. So, you know, those are a lot of the roles and then you're going to have to kind of tailor it a little more to your product. So you kind of take any one of those disciplines and think about how that applies to your product. So if you're an electrical engineer, uh, if you're building out your electrical team, you know, is your product very complex from the power side? Is it you do need people with really strong backgrounds and kind of power engineering? Maybe your electronics have a strong kind of Bluetooth or RF connection where you need someone it has got a very custom antenna in there. So you want to be looking for people that have that electrical engineering background on the software side and the programming side, you know, almost all devices now have a mix of software and firmware. You want to make sure the people you're recruiting for and building out bridge that divide. Even if, even if they're, the device is primarily software based, there's likely going to be some embedded, uh, embedded firmware and they need to be able to understand how, you know, you communicate well with that. And also I guess on the programming side now, with everything being so connected to the cloud, you know, you're gonna need people who understand how to then take that software, connect it up to the cloud, to the company's other products. I'd say it's particularly important if, uh, you know, if I was talking to, let's say the uh, new head of R&D at a large global company, very good chance that global company already has cloud system where they're communicating with other devices. And so making sure that they, bring people on their team that will understand how to, how to mesh that well. So you're going to want, you're going to want all of these different disciplines. And then also I would say bringing in on engineers have experience working with assays and understanding some of the important details about how the people on the assay side, you know, what decisions they're making influence the engineering side. So. Obviously, you don't want people who are too green in that regard. Ideally, they've worked with the assay teams before, and they understand how important things like temperature control are, or volumetric control on fluid pumping or dispensing things like that. So, I don't know. I guess that maybe that'd be some of my initial advice I'd pass along. Yeah, Brian, that was great. Yeah, and I I think you identified a lot, pretty much every discipline you would need from from an engineering perspective on a team. To, to use the phrase from prior episodes, automate an assay, right? So the science is typically at the client site. And then I think that's really the question. Like what team do you need on the engineering side? The question we want to discuss. What team on the engineering side and, you know, arguably what should you have internal at your company and what should you rely on externally? I think one, one area that I think is maybe up for discussion that you didn't mention was, was microfluidics, right? So a lot of these, a lot of these, these companies and, and, and diagnostic assays require microfluidic control manipulation. Usually microfluidics is like a core technology. So I feel like we're seeing a lot of that expertise on the client side, but I know in the past, you know, teams that are built internal still need external help particularly on the micro, microfluidics, which I think is the heart of these, these platforms. So can you speak a little bit to how how a team at a client site that has some microfluidic expertise can really leverage external expertise to get their assay, I guess, more robust and the platform more mature? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point you bring up. I mean, at this point, almost every device has some kind, of, well, every, almost every device has got fluidics to begin with. Uh, you know, I'd say there's, a fairly small subset of IVD devices that don't have fluids in them. And then from there, to your point, you know, pretty much everything ha- is moving more and more micro and even nano at times. And that's just for efficiency, throughput. Uh, the smaller you can drive down your fluids, right? The smaller, and quicker, the faster you can process things. So it's a good point. You, you definitely want people both internal and external on your teams who have good microfluidic backgrounds, there's, there's a mixture of kind of what that might mean. So that may mean you have some people on your team that have really deep analysis skills on microfluidics. So what I mean by that is, you know, someone who has a PhD background where they have done some really complex CFD modeling of how fluids move through a cartridge. That can be really valuable. You can save yourself a lot of time, save a lot of testing time if you can do some really good CFD modeling to understand how is fluid going to move into a small cartridge and make sure it wets out all the surfaces properly, make sure air bubbles leave. And so I, I think that's 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 a great expertise um, to potentially have in in-house If you don't, there are you know external partners that you can work with so it doesn't necessarily have to be in-house and then i would say maybe a step up from you know so we're we're thinking about modeling we're thinking about very specific flow in a very small localized portion of let's say a cartridge or a device but then there's as we kind of zoom out like slightly more macrofluidics. even even if we're in the microfluidic land but where we were talking about now pumping fluids through a cartridge or an instrument and that's where You want someone who also, maybe it's a different person, um, but someone who has experience understanding fluidics from more of a pressure drops across a cartridge or a system, right? You know, how, if they're going to get good pumping, you know, what pressure losses do you have? How does viscosity play into that? Understanding the different kinds of pumps out there and pumping options. What, you know, should you be looking at peristaltic pumps or should you be doing something uh, more of a, syringe pump so I would say that's that's someone who's got good at fluid experience but also you know understands maybe a lot of the off-the-shelf equipment out there that's used and and ideally you know you internally on your team have some people that are familiar with these things uh, familiar enough to work well you know to the extent your outsourcing can can interface well with with external teams yeah uh, that's great great point Brian and, and so yeah we're, we're kind of working from the inside out now and, and I liked how you described know, microfluidic expertise, but then more of like systems level fluidics control. So let's talk a little bit more about if you're, if you're trying to build a team, you know, in 2021, it's very challenging to recruit. I think we're all w- well aware of that. What and, and clearly you need a technical project manager on a assay based platform. So what, are the absolute must requirements for uh, traits for a technical project manager for these complex platforms. Because, you know, that is the one hire, if you're gonna hire one person to run a project at a client site, whether it's a startup, whether it's a global company, you know, obviously you need to have assay scientists, but you definitely need a technical project manager. And then from there, You know, it's, it's kind of up to a lot of different factors, what your team internally looks like, but talk to me a little bit about the, the absolute must traits for a technical project manager for a complex electromechanical or IBD system. Yeah, that's fair. I I couldn't agree more. That position is so crucial. They're overseeing all of these other engineers, scientists, designers. And they need to know enough about all of those different disciplines to understand how they relate together. I'd say the must have trait is they understand where these different disciplines overlap and what are the most likely pitfalls of those overlaps. You know, years ago, someone told me kind of, you know, every project either succeeds or fails at those, at those overlaps, at the interfaces, right? The interfaces of disciplines, the interfaces of subsystems. If you don't get the interfaces right between your team members and your subsystems, that's where things are going to fall because it's inherently those interfaces where you have the, the biggest weaknesses system, whether that system's people or, so I think, coming back to your question, that technical project manager needs to know and anticipate what those interfaces are going to be whether that's the interface between the cartridge or the instrument or the interface between the software engineers and the electrical engineers or the interface between the chemists and the people designing the cartridge. If they've had enough experience designing other systems where they have learned potentially the hard way, where those interfaces are likely to fail, they can head those things off. And so they can make sure they're pulling together the right people at the right time for the right meetings. Sometimes as formal as laying out maybe an interface specification where you're literally detailing bullet by bullet how this part of the system is going to mesh with that. I think that experience from previous projects, from previous companies, if you can be hiring someone who can walk in and say, you know, and you ask them, what's your experience understanding interfaces? And they have a solid answer and they know exactly where things fail like that. That kind of experience is really going to make or break a technical project manager. Yeah, that's great, Brian. And you stole my question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Andy. Yeah. So, so I was going to ask. Yeah, this is the most critical hire uh, or team member, right? For IBD platform development. What do you want to learn in an interview to make sure you're hiring the right candidate? I know you said, how, you know, how do you define interfaces? But I guess my my thought was. How have you handled failures, right? Failures in prior, because clearly you're going to want to hire an experienced program manager, ideally somebody who has IBD platform experience. But let's say, you know, you, you a failure that comes to mind to me is like you, somebody has run a cartridge based program before you fire up the the system for the first time with the first, first prototype of the cartridge and it doesn't work and so we want to hear how that project manager you know, went about kind of separating effects and understanding what, why that first run of that cartridge didn't work. And so hear them talk through both at the system level, the cartridge level, and to your point, Brian, at the, uh, at the interface. So you yeah. want to hear those things, hear how it interface to the instrument. And, you know, just, just let them talk you through that because you know, these problems will come about, you know, for, for your, pro- for their program that they're being hired for. Yeah, and and maybe the slight. I agree with everything you said. The only word choice I would change is those aren't necessarily failures as much as more the unexpected. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's. I think in any new cutting edge high tech device you're designing, there will be the unexpected. Uh, Like you said, you fire up the system, the the alpha prototype first time you fire it up, guaranteed there'll be unexpected things, even if you've done the absolute best job, you've planned everything out, you've developed good specification you've you know done all the design reviews um you know if you if you fire it up and nothing goes wrong you're probably not working on a cut enough cutting edge of a device so there's going to be unexpected and unexpected oftentimes of of you know you fire the system up and there's some unexpected thermal impact that affects your optical system you know some weird interface kind of a multi physics kind of interface right where you were not expecting um that the optical system could possibly be affected by this, and so you get that unexpected. And, and exactly to your point, okay, how are you going to handle things there? And to your point of kind of interviewing, you know, getting their sense of what do they do at those times? You know, how do they? How do they push through that? How do they problem solve their way out of it? You know, looking for you know, do they isolate variables? You know, do they fall back on looking at what kind of testing's been done to date? What are some ways that they can set up quick little experiments, quick little design of experiments to go through and say, okay, we think it might be a thermal effect on these optics. How do we test that? Maybe it's really simple. Maybe it's turn off the heater. But maybe there's maybe that's not that easy. And so you know, is there a way to put some interesting instrumentation in there to to make measurements? You'd want to hear that they have gone through that experience, that they are they take it seriously, but they also aren't you know, they're not crippled when something like that comes up. They know they know how to pull the team together, get the right people in the room, come up with a quick experiment and ideally push through it. If they've got that experience, if they've done that a lot, you know, when they're working on that next product and the next product has a new, new technology on it, they're, they're going to be cool, level-headed and and good at problem solving them way out their way out of it. Yep. Yeah. So you, you touched on something right there at the end that I wanted to bring up. So I feel like you, you're going to, you're going to find candidates that have been down that path before and solved problems, but it's the the, the all the, the intangibles. What what intangibles are you looking for in a project manager that that would give you the confidence that they're going to be able to carry the program through all of these trials and tribulations? You mentioned cool headedness. I think that's a that's a must. But and you're, you yourself having run programs, like what are some of the intangibles? that are required for a technical project manager for IVD platforms. I mean, great organization. There's always gonna be a million details on the project, being able to, to be organized. Also, inherently in any big program as a project manager, you will not be able to know all of those details. So I think being able to decipher out what are the key details you need to know and what are the other details you need to leave to your team members to know as a project manager, if you get caught up trying to keep track of every single detail, you'll, you'll be lost. And so I think those kind of intangible qualities of being able to parse information, catch on um, what are the, the, the key things that you should be aware of, you know, if, if one of your team members comes to you and says the, the mounting of this cartridge in the instrument, you know, it seems like the fixturing of it is stressing the cartridge and we are getting evidence of stress, mechanical stress in the cartridge. You may not need to go into all of the small details of exactly how that stress is being imparted in the cartridge, but you should be able to pretty quickly ask the questions, okay, what are the basic loads on the cartridge? Did we expect those there? What, and pretty quickly be able to hit on, you know, what are the, what are the key things here that might be, that might be driving, uh, those, the stress effects. So I think, uh, and then come back to your intangible thing. I think we mentioned level-headed. Maybe one other intangible is being able to draw on the strengths of your team members, right? Understanding where your team members excel the most and, and put them in the position to do that. So if you have a team member that's phenomenal at testing, knowing when the right time to draw in expertise is, or another team member that's phenomenal at designing, you know, those, those people dynamics, understanding your team members, that's another big intangible thing. So we've talked a lot about the technical project manager. I think we we would agree that that should be your first hire when you're building a team, uh, ideally, right? Because you can make progress, specking out your program and, and defining what needs to be done when, key requirements, all those things informed by their experience. What is the second hire that you would think would be, in, you know, in priority beyond a technical project manager and to help you answer that, let me just focus a little bit more. Again, you've got an assay science team that's demonstrating an assay on a bench. You've got, yeah, let's say it's a a startup or a GM of a a CEO of a startup or a, you know, GM of a business, like that, that sort of experience is there maybe even like VP of R and D and you want to translate this assay to a commercial product. What's the next hire? I think if you only had one, if you were limited to this hour, you get one more hire and that's it. I think a system engineer. Because I think ultimately, you know, if you, if you're that limited in hiring, ultimately you're going to be outsourcing the detailed design of the mechanical engineering of the software, but that system engineer is super valuable. As we mentioned earlier, they're the one overseeing all the disciplines, thinking about how things connect together as a system, thinking about, um, you know, the, to, to, to hit on the same phrase before the interfaces. So. I think that system engineers is a really crucial role and you could bring that person on first and then over time, build out the team below them, bring on more specific mechanical engineers, bring on more specific computer engineers, electrical engineers to kind of work under them or kind of in parallel with them on on, on more of the details as time goes on. Yeah. And then you mentioned other, other disciplines like optics, things like that. So I, I think that's where you get into the platform specific in-house hires, right? I, I agree. Right. Project manager, systems engineer, those are like two key ones, but then, you know, if if it's an optics, you know, measurement, you know, you're going to want some optics expertise probably came from the founder or someone of that ilk, probably already on the team and then maybe additional microfluidics expertise as, you know, as needed. All right. So we're building these teams to tackle these, these tough challenges, Brian. And again, I know you've run these programs and I've watched you run them and, and these, these problems have been solved and they're on the market. So I'm going to put you on the spot again here. So how do you solve these tough, tough problems? And, you know, is it diversity of these teams that really helps, helps get over these, these, what seem to me insurmountable challenges? I do think there's something about diverse mindsets and particularly diversity in how you go about solving problems that can be so valuable. I feel like there's, you know, some classic examples you'll hear sometimes in the engineering world, different schools of thought on how you go about solving things. There are even different schools of thought of, you know, people uh, from certain, you know, backgrounds will come at things very analytically, right? They're the way they're going to analyze this problem is with equations, with modeling calculations. There's also a very different mindset of how you solve an engineering problem and that's with uh build it test it see how it works and those are kind of like two very different schools of thought and they both can be hugely valuable at different times and if you have a team that is all on the analytical side the calculations the analytical you're probably going to be hindered because you can't learn everything that way and you may spend weeks and months building advanced models that are not grounded enough in the real world. On the flip side, if you have a team that's only doing the build it, test it, you may be um, spending a lot of time creating something that, uh, that fails and you're missing a fundamental physics aspect of it. So if I was building a team and I had my choice of people out there, I would want some people on that team that come at things from that analytical perspective. So that when we say, hey, why is this, why when we're trying to pump this fluid, is it doing this peculiar thing? They would say, oh, well, let me just do a really quick, you know, I don't know, maybe basic Bernoulli's equation, maybe just run a quick CFD, that'll help me understand it. But maybe when I, when I task my team with solving this problem, one person's going off to do those equations, that modeling. And simultaneously, another person is going off with a completely different perspective on how to solve that, which is, well, I'm just going to go throw together a quick cartridge. I'm going to hook it up to a quick pump in the basement, and I'm going to run a quick test, and I'll be able to diagnose it that way. And in an ideal world, if you've got that team set up right with those diverse perspectives on solving a problem, when you bring them back together the next day and say, well, what did you learn? Ideally, the person that said, the I'm going to build it and test it, came back, and they have some interesting video of how it actually played out and they learned something about physically testing it. At the same time, the person that did the the analytical aspect I and mean, it comes back and said, yeah, I can show right here with this equation or right here with this modeling uh, why that that didn't work. So if you can you can draw on both those and, and most people their brain is wired a little bit more towards the one than the other. And I think that's a that's a that's a really good example. And you could apply the example I mentioned, you know, fluidics, but you could take any other engineering problem the pump isn't working your heater isn't working you're getting weird electrical noise you know on the electrical noise is the way to solve it to go back and go back to base physics possibly that's probably valuable is it also to maybe throw it in some kind of you know rf emissions chamber and test what's going on there yeah it's really valuable so i think i think in so many engineering things if you can be both coming at things from calculations fundamentals, but also from a, what quick test can we do to, to prove it out? Those two things combined can be really powerful. Do you think you can interview to tease out as you're building a team to, to tease out the mind that you're, you're hiring? Definitely. And you could take any one of those examples, toss out that challenge to someone Hmm. say, Hey, I just built this, built this small little. PCR-related heater, this heater has to go up against the cartridge, and I ran my first test, and I'm not getting the temperature ramp rates I expected to get in that PCR chamber, what would you do? Right? An interview question, you ask that person, what, what would you do? What's your next step? Right. It would be interesting to see what they say. Um, You know, maybe your ideal candidate lists all those things I just talked about. They would list both running some quick tests and going back to some modeling, maybe you know that the person you already have on your team has a PhD in the modeling side. So what you're looking for in this next hire is the person that says, oh, I'm gonna run down the lab, throw some thermal couples in there, turn on the heater real quick, grab some data. Then I'm gonna modify the thermal mass of it. And once I change that, I'm gonna change the thermal conductivity of the film on the PCR chamber and do all of those things together. You know, I, I definitely think you can, you know, understand how people think by giving them some little tests." you know, engineering problems like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that. that's great. Yeah. And, it, and also, as you're talking, it, it brings up an interesting topic as you're trying to build these teams. I mean, we can wrap up with this, this thought to hammer home your diversity point, but you want to hire people that are unlike you. Right. And, <laughs> and, and we've heard that. And, and I think the reason why is because you need diversity, right? You need people who are thinking differently from you to compliment you, to help you solve these problems that require all these different heads together in a room. And I think, I do think, you know, are, are the people that we're interfacing with here at Key Tech like understand that. And, but it's good to hear it also in the, in this podcast. And, and I think it's, it's helpful for them also to kind of get some tips from us right on what are the most important hires to make when you're trying to build this team? You know, it's, it's the, it's the technical project manager. It's a systems engineer. Maybe those two need to have diverse, you know, mindsets. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, and that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg really. Right. And there's a lot that you could get into on structuring these teams, how to run, how to run projects, how to manage them, how to lead them. But I feel like our, our, our clients are really struggling with building those teams. And that's, that's you know, that's, that's really where I think uh, they need to spend a lot of their time. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, totally agree. I think it's so easy to think about, you know, most of us are really good at, at a lot of aspects of life, but we all have weaknesses. And so to your point of, of that diverse thinking, there hiring people that fills in our weaknesses. That's, that's how you make a really great team. Yeah. Cool. All right, Brian. Thanks for your time today. Always enjoy it. Anytime. Yeah. All right. We got to give people what they want, man. (laughs) So. <laughs> All right. See you next right. time, Eddie. All right. See you guys. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, www.keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.